Well, here we go. We're starting a new series. You've seen a you've seen a, a cityscape on the screen, and we are beginning a series in the book of Daniel. We're going to look at the first six chapters of the book of Daniel for the next five weeks, and uh, talk about what it looks like to thrive in Babylon. You say, "I don't live in Babylon." Well, we'll get that. We'll get to that in a second. How do we thrive uh, in 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 our in our culture in our city in the same way that the that these young men that we'll look at thrived in Babylon. Have I told you the story about growing up uh, in uh, a time as a, as a late 40s person? I grew up as a kid in the, the culture in America where there was a red phone um, on the president's desk and there was the imminent threat of nuclear war, or at least that's what we felt. And so I grew up uh, with... Uh, for a few years of my life in New Mexico, and um, um, a friend of my dad's um, was pretty concerned about the end times and the coming end of our of our society, and so he bought a large piece of property property in the middle of the mountains and started digging a hole in the mountain to create a bunker. I mean, we I mean, literally, by the time that we left, I used to go up there and ride my mini bike and hike uh, hike on that mountain because it was. He was, friends, he was a friend of ours, and I would see the, the poured concrete and the hole in the ground and the, the artificial lake that was established up there and started to think about all the, all the food rations that were going to be coming up in the trucks and whatever, and I, I, was, I was enamored and or fearful and or um, in wonder of this great enterprise of stealing away from the rest of the world and hiding out until the end comes. Anybody ever had a, had a desire to do that, buy um, you know, a year's supply of food online and store it in your basement? We did that. Um, or I say we did that. He did that in New Mexico. But forget about nuclear war for a second. When I became a parent, I just wanted to protect my kids from humans. Can I just change the story for a second? You know, I, 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 haven't, I haven't bought a, uh, a, a mountain yet, but I, I have thought about locking my children up in a room um, we will provide food and air and TV. Oh, that's prison, isn't it? Okay, wait a minute. Um, but I wanted to protect them from humans, you know, from the seduction of a sexual culture, from the violence in the video game culture, from the anti-authority culture, from the, you don't really believe in God, do you, culture, from the Whatever you want to fill in the blank culture, as a parent, all of a sudden I realize I've got to take care of these kids, and wow, this world is wacko. What do I do? That kind of feels a little bit like a bunker, doesn't it? A little bit about that sounds very similar to my father's friend. I just didn't create a concrete hole yet for them to live in. Does anybody else feel like I did? Yeah? We feel tempted to have these responses. Almost daily, another bomb goes off. And most of the time, it's aimed towards Christians or a Western culture that's being targeted. Conflict with faith, centered views on Jesus, being the norm, being mocked. Persecution and anger directed towards the church based on biblical values that the church holds on to in regards to sexual issues or life in the womb or being evangelistic. We feel attacked for who we are. We feel attacked for what we believe. Do we? Don't we? Even more subtle, though, is the culture shaping 
that goes on and influences the believers or the church without us even even knowing it? Are you aware that you might be being shaped by something? Hopefully we're being shaped by the Bible and by the church, but oftentimes we find ourselves shaped by other things. Ways that the enlightened world, the world that has come to know that surely there's not a God, but through human reason, through human effort and enterprise, through academic excellence, we can make ourselves better. We can be a better world. We can love each other better when we have more money, more brains, more brawn, more opportunity. And yet we know that that's not true, isn't it? Movies, music, classrooms, teachers, friend groups, politicians, shaping us, moving us towards some mark off-center. It's relentless, isn't it? How can you be so outdated? How can you be so archaic? How can you be so bigoted? How can you be so confused? How can you be so weak and stupid? How can you, church? Do you feel it? Have you experienced it? We leave these conversations, we leave these lectures, we leave these forms of entertainment confused and at best oftentimes condemned. This is not Kansas anymore, Dorothy. As a result, we either feel the need to hunker down, to build a bunker, or to separate ourselves from society, either physically or emotionally, or... We rise up, we write, we talk with judgment, we resort to hostility towards the culture. We either marginalize ourselves from society by escape or ridicule or by fighting or hope for the best until Jesus returns. Oh, and he can't come soon enough, can he? Jesus Only we can survive. What we really want to ask, though, is how does God see all of this? Because that really, everything I just shared is really based on my own human perception, my own human fear, and my own human judgment. But what does God say about all this is really the question. Is this how God sees things? Does he agree with our moralistic high ground that we establish? Or does he agree with our approach to an escape mentality, whether through removing our physical presence to some remote land or emotionally detaching from the world, cloistering our family. He definitely defines clearly that moral lives are to be expected and that we're to teach about morality. He definitely urges us to live holy and, and be set apart in our lifestyle. And he also tells us that there's times that we should flee temptation or flee evil. So there is some grounds scripturally for us to have that thought. But more often than not, he encourages us to stand, doesn't he? He encourages us to season the meat of this world with his love, with his truth, with his grace. He encourages us, I think, to shed light in the darkness. How does light get into the darkness? Unless it's in the darkness. He encourages us to turn the other cheek, which means that the first cheek got smacked. 
He wants us to reveal Jesus to others. And how can we reveal Jesus to others if a tree in the forest falls or doesn't fall without anybody being there? It's for all of you philosophers out there. He wants us to reveal Jesus where people are. And where are people? There's a lot of people in that picture. And that's actually New York City, I thought, I think. We try to get to Boston, but there's a lot of people where we live, isn't there? There's a lot of people that need to see Jesus. But unless they see Jesus through you and me, they're not going to see Jesus. And unless they see who Jesus really is and not the perverted, shifted, shaped, judgment-based, moralistic, get out of here, Jesus. We don't want that Jesus to be seen, do we? We want the loving, grace-filled, you can overcome, you have hope in the midst of this world, Jesus. But those people right there and out here are not going to see that Jesus unless that's the kind of Jesus that's living in us. Yes, things are bad. Yes, there is an assault on God's values, his truth, his church, and his very existence. But if we believe in God, we know he's not rattling or fretting up in heaven. He has overcome the world, it says. I have told you all this, John 16, that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Which means if we trust in him who has overcome, then we overcome, don't we? This brings us to our series. You're like, wow, are we going to study Daniel or not? Just got to get you set up for what's happening in the world of Daniel. Daniel, it's history. The beginning of Daniel or the writing of Daniel begins uh, at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity where the children of Israel have been Um, overcome by the Babylonians, and many of their brightest and youngest and a large swath of their population has been exiled um, to a foreign land. Israel had been, uh, God had allowed this to happen, it says in Scripture, because of Israel's rebellion, because of their unwillingness to repent and live for God. God, through many prophets, communicated over and over again, if you will repent and turn back to me, then things will go well with you. But if you continue to be obstinate and rebellious towards me, then I'm going to bring judgment. And finally, judgment came. Not because God wanted judgment, but because his people's hearts had turned from him. They would not repent after repeated warnings from prophets. So God declared that they would be punished by being overtaken and removed from the land that they lived in, and exiled to a foreign land. We read about this in chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. Look with me. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia, Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest kings of his time, one of the greatest kings of that whole era era, or period of time. He ruled the Babylonian empire and um, uh, the the power and the rule of his of his kingdom was expansive uh, through building and, and acquiring land and conquering people. 
Babylon, the capital of this area, 50 miles south of what is modern-day Baghdad, Iraq. That's kind of geographical if you're trying to, uh, trying to put in your mind, where, did, where is this place? 50 miles south of Baghdad, uh, it was known as uh, a great cultural center. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon were known for centuries as one of the great wonders of the world. They had success from a human standpoint. They had power. They had culture. They, in the world's eyes, were thriving. But the Babylonians opposed the things of God. Um, And God pronounces judgment through Jeremiah on Babylon. That even after they captured the Israelites, they too would be destroyed and overtaken by an enemy because of their rebellion towards God. God even sometimes uses the rebellious to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes that's true of you and me. In the New Testament, Babylon actually symbolizes, um, some see Babylon as it's used symbolizing at that time Rome, which was the the cultural city of its time. And the scripture in New Testament also refers to Babylon as a, as a symbol for a place of wicked, wickedness and decadence when you read in Revelation about Babylon. That's how it's described. So Babylon, the place that promotes wickedness and decadence, decadence and does not promote a dependence on the living God. Does that sound familiar to you? Which city should we name in America? see how it lines up. Which human heart should we compare that to? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, where the children of Israel lived, 605 um, B.C., was sieged by Nebuchadnezzar. It was the first of three um, sieges, um, and it was the beginning of God's judgment. And it was at the beginning of uh, it was at 605 that we just read that Nebuchadnezzar came and took off some of the people and some of the the sacred objects from the temple. We also know of two other subsequent sieges. 598, Nebuchadnezzar comes again to depose King Jehoiakim, who had been rebellious towards him. Jehoiakim had died by the time he got there, and so Jehoiakim, his son, was reigning, and Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive along with another 10,000 or so Israelites and took them back to, back to Babylon. So you have groups of people being exiled to Babylon while some stayed in Israel. And another wave was taken to Babylon, and then in 588, Nebuchadnezzar came one more time, <clears throat> sieged the city again, destroyed it, destroyed the temple, and took all the rest of the sacred objects out of the temple back to Babylon. By 588, 605 to 588, in 17 years, is that right? 12, 17 years, um, Israel was laid waste, and Jerusalem was sacked by Babylon. And to the Babylonians, to the Babylonians, their God had won. The temple of the, the children of Israel was destroyed, and the worship objects were in their temple, in the place of their gods. And God allowed it. Why? Because sometimes God allows judgment to lead us to repentance. As much as we don't like it, because we love to Love to see God as a loving God, which he is. But there are times when judgment comes, discipline comes from God because he loves us more than we realize. And if left to our own accord, generation after generation after generation, we become more wicked and evil and evil and evil. 
without the reminder that there is a God. And sometimes, most of the time, he extends with mercy and says, if you will repent, I don't want to do this, but we don't repent. And so finally, he says, for the next generation's sake, and for the next generation's sake, and for the next generation's sake, and for the hundreds of thousands of millions to come, something has to stop. That's why God brings judgment. Not because he hates us or hates people, but because he hates sin and how it destroys whole cultures and civilizations. Even like what Amy was talking about in Cambodia. But he also allowed it to happen to reveal his glory in an unbelieving land. To take what the enemy meant for harm and to turn it into good. Do you remember that phrase? Do you remember who said that before? Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? When he was taken into captivity and God allowed him to be in prison so that one day he would rise to such a place that he would be able to deliver his people from famine and protect his people. God sometimes does what looks like a terrible thing in order for something great to happen. To those who would know about the stories of Daniel in his contemporary time, during his days, for those who would see his life, see the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for those who would watch these godly men and, I'm sure, women, this community of people love and serve God. It was a testimony. It was an exile testimony that God was faithful. And remember this. Know this that this was an unbelievably hard time for the Israelites because everything they knew about God was being turned upside down. The four pillars of their faith um, had been rocked. The covenant promise of God that he would be with them was being challenged. Where was God in this exile? The land is an inheritance that God would bless them by giving them a land. He was uprooting them out of the land that he had given them. Where is the promise of this land that would be ours forever? The Davidic kingship was being destroyed and brought to ruin. No longer would a king from the Davidic line sit on the throne in this land, or at least in this period of time. And the very presence of God in Jerusalem, in the temple, destroyed. And the sacred articles of God removed from the temple and taken to a foreign god. Can you imagine what these people felt like? What they could have felt like in Babylon? Everything that they knew about God had been taken from them or had been challenged. Which puts into perspective Daniel and these young men even more so. That at the very precipice of this this turnover of events, they are put in a place of decision as teenagers. Read with me. Verse 3. The king ordered... Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other nobles who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and of wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they were to enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribes of Judah, the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was to be called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was to be called Shadrach. Mishael was to be called Meshach. 
And Azariah was called Abednego. <clears throat> so what we see here in these passages of Scripture is we see the start of the Babylonians' work to assimilate the best of Israel into their culture, to indoctrinate them, to, to, uh, to reorient them to their way of life, to humiliate the people in taking the best and brightest and seeing them paraded around with new names, new clothes, new assignments, not serving their own, their own land, but serving a foreign god in a foreign land. This was, called, this was a purposeful indoctrination and control by Babylon, Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar to reorient and change and crush this culture forever, to remove it from its pride in existence. Oftentimes, renaming was very much a part of that. Daniel's name meant God is my refuge. His new name was Bel, the supreme God of Babylon. Hananiah's name meant Yahweh is gracious. Shadrach meant I am fearful of Aku, the moon god. Mishael was who is God. Meshach was who is Aku. Azariah was Yahweh has helped. Abednego was servant of the shining one, Neg. You see what they were doing? They were not only changing the way that they lived, but they were naming them different names. They were changing or trying to change their identity, to change their very uh, essence of who they are. Do you feel it in your culture? Do you feel it happening to you? Do you sense that what God is calling to each one of us is to be aware that there is a shaping going on and your names are being changed or trying to be changed? Somebody's trying to give you a new identity, not marked by God, not named by God, not named the child of God, the one who is loved by God, the one who is helped by God, the one who is great and mighty and awesome. That's how you're named, church. That's who you are. But when we hit the face of culture and the temptations of this world, we start to doubt not only God, but who we are in ourselves. I've had conversations with different ones of you wondering who you are really in God. God has named you. You put your faith in him. He's named you. He's given you a name, son and daughter of the God most high. That's who you are. These men were selected because they were strong, healthy, good-looking, educated. Sounds like what we esteem in our culture, doesn't it? Good looks, muscular, beautiful, <laughs> healthy, nice skin, lots of degrees, best colleges, good judgment. That's what makes us really stand out. Shine. He was looking for the best. Sounds a lot like how we live our lives, doesn't it? What we strive for. And yet, those aren't always the highest qualities of God, are they? David had some of them. He was handsome, but he wasn't the one that they were looking for. Gideon was not quite up to snuff. The disciples were ordinary, unschooled men, is what. The scripture says, they were country bumpkins. 
I can say that because I was one. <laughs> Paul talked about how ordinary and common the Corinthians were. How there were not many that were wise, noble, etc., etc., etc. I don't think that God is looking for muscular, healthy, nice skinned, 4.0 world changers. He is looking for wholeheartedly devoted lovers of God. And that's a big difference. Now, can you be one of those? I think I'm pretty good looking. I still love Jesus. You can be one without the other. But if you're going to choose one, one with the other. But if you're going to choose one, choose Jesus. Jesus himself, how was he described? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Sounds like somebody I want to elect for public office. God, through these four men, God, through these four men, had a different idea of what success and favor would look like. If Nebuchadnezzar was saying, live my way and succeed, God, through these four people, was saying, live my way and thrive. Live devoted to me. Live completely in step with who I am. Hunger and thirst for my life and my righteousness. Give yourself fully to me. And whether you are in flow with society or against the flow, you will thrive. But Daniel, verse 8, was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. But he responded, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Daniel spoke with the attendant. He must have done some really good speaking because who had been appointed the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he said, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's foods. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendants fed them only vegetables instead of food and wine provided for the others. Verse 17, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom, and God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. There have been whole diets based on the Daniel diet. I actually don't think that's what Scripture is teaching. Ah, we found the act. We found the diet, the hidden recipes for health and beauty. I don't think that's what God was saying. You know what the diet of Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was? The diet of feasting on God. They found themselves yielded to God in such a way that God blessed them physically, academically, wisdom, etc., etc. What what was happening here was a showdown between the culture of Babylon and the culture of God. 
And they drew a line in the sand and they said, we are not going to defile ourselves by doing something that would cause us to contradict our allegiance to the living God. And this is the beginning of a subtle trap. Do this. Do this. Look like this. Act like this. Walk this way. Be like me. And before I know it, God is way over there. And I've left the roots of what makes me who I am and who I should be in God. And they said, from the very beginning, we are going to live for our God. But they didn't do it through separation. They didn't do it through, they didn't call a hunger fast. They said, would you just let us try this and test it? And God was faithful. They did it graciously and respectfully. They had chosen to trust in God's regimen for success instead of Babylon's. Sometimes they, they look the same in the practice, but not in motivation. We can be healthy eaters, but are we trusting that God is our healer? We can be working out to promote ourselves versus staying healthy to serve God. And look the same, can we? We can be getting rich to get rich, or we can be acquiring wealth to give it away and to be generous. It looked the same, but where's our heart? Where's our devotion? There is a a concern of God's and a desire of God's to thrive in the culture, but not be of the culture. They could have revolted against their name change. There's no indication that they did. They could have had a hunger fast and been stubborn, but they didn't. They could have plotted or to flee or fight, but they remained faithful within this culture and succeeded in retaining faith and changing the culture. One choice, one step at a time. They chose to allow their lives change the culture. Running out of time here. Ben, come on up. And so we end this passage of scripture with this, this declaration. God beat the Babylonians, oh, that's my phrase, God beat the Babylonians at their game. But this is what it says. When the training period Ordered by the king was completed. The chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. So the chief of staff was not beheaded. They were not rejected because they were God-fearers and God-followers. They weren't sent to prison because they they, they opposed what the king had ordered. They were seen as excellent And whenever the king consulted them in matters requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Perspective. This young man and these four men were teenagers when they came to Babylon. That verse described states that Daniel, from that point on, was in the king's service. And you know how long he was in the king's service, or the king's plural service? Because he outlived a lot of kings. He was in the service of the kingship of Babylon for 60 years. 60 years, from that point as a teenager until whatever that is, in his 70s. He was seen as a trusted advisor to an ungodly king. And some of the kings became God-fearing because of him. We'll hear the stories later. They changed the culture. I looked at my son today, and I said this, and we're going to conclude with this. 
We sit in this room, and who knows where God has us in this question of, God, have I assimilated in the culture, or am I set apart? And there's a question for all of us this morning. Am I set apart for you, and in any way that I'm not God, would you help me to be set apart for you so that you can receive glory for my life? That's our response this morning for all of us. But I think about these young men. They were teenagers, And yeah, maybe they'd experienced some things that they were sorry for, but they were at the beginning of their life. And at the beginning of their life in a foreign land where everything was turned upside down and there was a really probably regal and gold-studded king and awesome food and wonderful harp music and whatever would attract young people at that time. And, And that person said, follow me and have all this. You're the best of the best, and you're going to be right beside me all the days of your life. And I'm going to promote you, and you're going to have great things. And those young men said, no, we cannot turn away from our God. And they stepped out in consecration at the beginning of their life and said, from this day forward, I'm to serve God. Can we all do that? Stand up with me. Lord, would you consecrate it?